Some of you may be familiar with these iconic photos. There's a couple of them that we'll pull up. Anybody ever seen these pictures? Any idea who that is real quick? That's JFK. That's little John Jr. underneath. Iconic photos of John Jr. playing under the Resolute Desk, as it's called there in the Oval Office, of the President of the United States, who just happened to be the little fella's daddy, right? These awesome pictures, by comparison this morning, only faintly hint at the amazing and certain relationship that you and I can personally have with the God of the universe as our Father. What we have through Christ with God the Father makes these pictures look like nothing by comparison. Amen? I want to talk to you this morning as we continue in our study of the book of Romans uh, about this relationship. We have been looking at the book of Romans under the heading of the gospel of the righteousness of God. In short, the book of Romans is the good news that the very righteousness that a holy God requires of us, he gives to us as a gift to be received by faith through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's Romans in a nutshell. Paul takes 16 chapters to unfold that uh, in all of its fullness and beauty, and we're, we're, we're not quite halfway there. And then in the latter half of the book, he, he, he unpacks the implications of this gospel. You know, we talk a lot about being the children of God, don't we? We use that phrase, the children of God. But I wonder how many of us in the back of our minds really wonder, is it really possible to know the kind of intimacy with God where, free from fear of His displeasure, we actually relate to Him like the kid in the pictures, we actually call Him Daddy, and we crawl around under His desk while He rules the world. Has anybody ever wondered that? You've heard that phrase, children of God. But how realistic is it for some of us? Do we look like the kid in the picture with our father? I want to talk to you today, and I hope you leave here as confident children of God. That's the the title of the message, Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be, verses 12 through 18. Confident children of God. That's who we are. That's who we can be if we're not quite there. That's who God wants us to be. The take-home truth, our Father wants every believer to live in the joyful and grateful, spirit-given confidence that we are His children. If you're a believer today, God does not want you walking around wondering if you can play in the oval under his desk. God doesn't want you wondering and being timid in your relationship to him and in your day-to-day relating to him. Our Father wants every believer to live in the joyful and grateful, spirit-given confidence that we are as children. Stand with me, if you will, as we read our text. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but on the contrary, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that seems to be a bit of a downer at the end of those verses, doesn't it? But listen to verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You may be seated and may God add his blessing to this portion of his word. Our Father wants every believer to live in the joyful and grateful spirit-given confidence that we are his children. Where does such confidence Come from. I want you to get this from the very beginning. Don't miss this. Such confidence is entirely the work of the Spirit. There's not some magic formula of religious things you do to get this kind of confidence and assurance about your relationship to God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you need to know about what he's doing. You need to believe the truth of what he's doing as he works in your life. But this is entirely the work of the Spirit of God. Listen to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Who's doing the work? The Spirit is. He's leading you. If you're led by Him, you're a son of God. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Who gives that testimony? Who bears that witness? The Spirit of the living God. The Spirit of Christ Himself who lives within us. So how? How does the Spirit of God make us confident children of God? Well, first of all, by way of review, children of God are, number one, convinced, notice, by the Spirit that God has declared them righteous in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 8, we didn't read it earlier, but we read it for several weeks in a row there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll never be convinced of that unless the Spirit of God has worked in your heart, given you faith to trust Jesus, and you've come to Him in, in simple faith to take the righteousness that He requires and offers to you as a gift through Jesus. Justification by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, believing its truth is a spirit imparted reality. When I believe that Jesus is my righteousness, it's because the Spirit of God has been at work in me. He convinces me. He convinced Paul. He inspired Paul to write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So first of all, children of God are people who are convinced by the Spirit that God has declared them righteous in Christ. Do you know that today you stand before holy God and, and, and that God sees you as righteous as Jesus is because you are in him. You've joined yourself to Christ. You've taken the gift of his righteousness and, 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 and believe the word of God that God credited, credits that to your account, spiritually speaking. Have you done that today? 
That's the first step in being a child of the living God. Our Father wants every believer to live in the joyful and grateful, spirit-given confidence that we are his children. And the first way that he makes that happen is convincing us that God's declared us righteous in Christ. Our standing before God, the foundation of it all, it's based solely upon the work of Jesus Christ. That's how I can be a child of God. But secondly, children of God are led by the Spirit. We saw this last week to kill sin. Not only are we declared righteous in Christ, but we are led by that same Spirit to kill sin. Verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, not to our sinful nature, the desires of our earthly body, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, what does it say? You will die eternally. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. People who've been justified by faith in Jesus kill sin in their lives. They reveal the fact that they've trusted Christ and been indwelt by the Spirit in that sin is, is, is regularly and consistently put to death. Perfectly? Oh no. But regularly and even in increasing measure, we grow as believers in following Jesus Children of God are convinced by the Spirit that God has declared them righteous in Christ. Children of God are led by the Spirit to kill sin. You see, our Father wants every believer to live in the joyful and grateful Spirit-given confidence that we are His children. But notice with me, thirdly, and this is really the meat of our passage this morning, children of God enjoy the privileges of adoption by the Father through the work of of the Spirit. We see it in verses 15 through 18. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Think of it, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want to share with you from these verses five privileges of the children of God. Uh, we, we, as children of God, enjoy the privileges of adoption by the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit. Five privileges of the children of God. I borrow and modify these from Tim Keller. You see, the Spirit of God works in our hearts to produce, first of all, security in God. The first part of verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You know, slaves fear their masters, right? Employees, though not always, in some cases, many cases, perhaps most cases, fear not performing up to the expectations of their boss and losing their jobs. And it's not just in the workplace. Fear of losing a relationship, it's everywhere in our lives, is it not? Paul says, though, when it comes to our relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear. 
but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Sons and daughters of the Father, listen, we are secure as his kids. We are secure with him as our Father. Not all of us have the blessing of security in our earthly families, right? Many of you in this room, no doubt, don't have a secure relationship with your earthly father, perhaps even your earthly mother. That's just a reality of of, of, of humanity, is it not? But a parent-child relationship based on God's design is the one relationship where you should never have to feel insecure. And yet so many do, and it's painful, and it wrecks lives. It explains self-destructive behaviors in, in, in the lives of so many. And it breaks our hearts when we see these things. But I want you to understand the reason that reality hurts so bad is because it's not supposed to be that way in the earthly family. But more than that, The earthly family shadows the heavenly connection with the heavenly Father for which we were all created. And here's the deal. Sin messed up all of our connections, but God has restored. And God has redeemed. And God can even redeem earthly relationships. But one that is certain for you today, when you come to to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you trust Him to forgive your sins and make you righteous before the, the, the bar of heaven, then God becomes your Father and you become His child and nothing for all of eternity can change that you are secure in God. For you as a child of God, the Spirit of God is, as the text calls Him, the Spirit of Adoption. The fact that you have the spirit of Jesus is synonymous with, me, with, with, with saying God's adopted you. Do you think God would send his own spirit to live in you if he wasn't going to take you to the house? If he wasn't going to give you a room? If he wasn't going to make you part of the family? F.F. Bruce says the term adoption may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears, but In the Roman world of the first century A.D., an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was not in the smallest degree inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. It was a big deal to be adopted in that day. And through the legal process of, of, of Roman adoption, all of the family authority and name, everything that went with being a member of that family, went with that adoption. You see, we have security with God. What a privilege. What a privilege. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means you've been adopted into the family. You are a son. You should never fall back again into the slavery of fear. You are a son with with all the rights and privileges. You're family with God and nothing can ever again change that. But secondly, our second privilege as children of God is intimacy with God. This is just a a step deeper than where we just were. The second part of verse 15 says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Listen, 
by whom, that spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Don't miss how amazing this is. Don't let these familiar words just kind of wash past you. and I want them to soak in to your heart. You can address the creator of the universe, the rescue of your soul, with a term of endearment, daddy, maybe papa, whatever, whatever, however, however it is you as a young child thought about your dad or your father figure in this world, whoever that might be, however precious that person was, how did you, how did you talk to him? You know what this is saying? You can call God daddy, papa. You can use the language of a, of a one-year-old, a two-year-old, as they first cry out with all the simplicity and, and trust to their daddy. Like to God that way. That's intimate. That's close. You know, when one of my kids, when they were little, even, even to this day, when they, if they say daddy, I'm, I'm there. Now, I'm not saying, just before my wife tells you, I'm not saying there can't be moments when I may be distracted and they, and they say, Daddy, and I don't hear, you know, all that. Us men, we, we have selective hearing at points, and, and when you got six of them, I mean, I mean, give me some credit, right? Six of them, I mean, sometimes you just want them all to quit saying anything. But when they really need me and they say, Daddy, I'm all ears. There's nothing that thrills the heart of a, of a father anymore than to hear his child say, Hey, Daddy. And I'm thankful to have that relationship with my own earthly father. I still call my daddy, Daddy. Because he's dear to me, and we have a close relationship. One scholar said that Abba was an everyday word. It was a homely family word. No Jew would have dared to address God in this manner. And yet, and yet Jesus always did it. The Aramaic word, Abba. It, it would have been the word that Jesus from a baby would have used in his native tongue. In all his prayers, which are handed down to us, he uses, with one exception, his cry from the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In all of his other prayers, he uses the term Abba, Father. He empowers his disciples to speak to their heavenly Father, literally, as the small child speaks to his Father in the same confident and childlike manner. It's interesting, Jewish usage shows how this father-child relationship to God far surpasses any possibilities of intimacy assumed in Judaism of Jesus' day. And so indeed, as, as Jesus came on the scene and started praying like that, and when his disciples said, teach us to pray, and he said, pray like this, our Father, it was something radically new. Totally different. A whole new level of intimacy with the Almighty. But don't miss it. He wants you to think of and talk to Him this way. He actually, as the text says, did you see it? He wants you to cry out, Abba. Daddy! 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says, let us notice the word cry. We cry, Abba, Father, the text says. It's a very strong word, and clearly the apostle has used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry. Expresses, it expresses deep emotions. Is that how you talk to your father? Do you enjoy this privilege of having security in God to the point that you enjoy the intimacy that is yours in Christ with God, and when you pray, you, you cry like a baby? Daddy, I need to talk to you. The third privilege I want you to see from this text is assurance from God. It's really what all this is all about. Verse 16 puts it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Just want to be real clear. The the important spirit in this verse is not your spirit. It's his spirit. Amen? Your spirit just listens to what he's got to say. Amen? Amen? That's what we always do. We listen to what God's got to say and respond. This is not about, uh, <laughs> you know, like your, your spirit needs to be convinced by God. No, your spirit just gets the message that I'm, I've made you a child of God. We receive this gift of assurance from the Spirit. The Spirit of God speaks into the heart of every believer. And he says something like this, God really does love you forever. Remember when you doubt Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you. That's what the Spirit of God does in your heart every day. Sometimes we can, we can turn down the volume on his, on his voice, can't we? Through sin, selfishness, different, different choices we make to ignore him, staying away from the Word of God, not opening our Bibles to read and hear him speak through his written Word. But nonetheless, he's there speaking this message. Romans 5, verse 5, we looked at that some time ago, put it this way, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Way back in Romans 5, we we learned that God floods our hearts with the presence of his Spirit and through, through that Spirit, a sense of his love. He floods our hearts with his love through the Spirit. The fourth privilege I want you to notice this morning is that we as children of God have an inheritance, the inheritance of God himself. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs. That's the way it works, isn't it? We don't need to spend a whole lot of time explaining that, I don't believe. If you're in the family, then you, 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 uh, you, know, you, you, you inherit the family estate. In this case, it's a little different because nobody, uh, nobody's going, God's not going to die and you're an heir of God, right? You're going to die. <laughs> and you're going to get the inheritance. You see how that works a little different? Like on earth, our, our, our parents have to die for us to get the inheritance. In this deal, we die and we enjoy the inheritance. What a salvation. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. It's almost like Paul says, if children, then heirs, and then he just, he just, he, 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 he's blown away again, freshly. And he says, Y'all, we're heirs of God. (laughs) While I'm thinking about it, what that means is we're joint heirs with Christ. Uh, Those are two equal phrases. I mean, they both both are mind-boggling. To to, to understand, you get an inheritance from God. You get God forever. But in some other way to think, 
whatever Christ as the son of the living God inherits from his father, we're joint in, with him in that. We get the same thing he gets. Hello? I mean, are you blown away? Are you not blown away yet? How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory. There's our inheritance that is to be revealed to us. You know, this kind of reminds me of Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul there says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, Paul? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is an inheritance that is, that is from God look like? Well, he spends the next, the, 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 most of this chapter unfolding it, but skipping down to verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might also be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When this life is over, when Jesus returns or we die, the Spirit of God living in you, it's the promise that you're going to make it and you're going to get the inheritance. You've been sealed for that day. What is this inheritance? Again, it's God himself. Chad, how do you know that? Romans chapter 5 verse 2 says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Somebody may say, well, could it be that the glory of God is something different than God? Well, obviously, they're not exactly the same, but, but without God, there is no glory of God. Amen? Y'all, y'all, y'all tracking? The glory of God is, is, is a revelation of God, right? It's part of his, his, his unveiling of himself. And Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But down in verse 11, he says, we also rejoice in God. The salvation that we have, we hope for the glory of God. We're going to see his glory one day. But one day, we're going to have direct access, no longer by the eyes of faith, but have direct access in his presence, face to face with almighty God. Here's the other passage that convinces me that our inheritance is God himself. Now, we get a whole lot. I mean, there's there's streets of gold. There's a a beautiful city. Everlasting life. There's all kinds of things that go along with him. But there's nothing more precious or glorious or beautiful or satisfying. Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What's important about heaven? What's important about the eternal state and the new heavens and the new earth? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's what's important. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things 
have passed away. It's like the psalmist said it in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? What in heaven is there for me, God, but you? Ultimately speaking. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Listen. And my portion, how long? Forever. What do you get in the inheritance you receive as an heir of God and a co-heir with Jesus? You get God. You get to behold His glory forever. What did Moses pray? Way back in Exodus 30-something? What did he ask God for? What What do you want to see more than anything? Why were you created? What, what, what is it that alone will satisfy your soul forever? Moses prayed, show me your glory. He's shown us his glory in Jesus. And he'll give us all the fullness of it forever in his presence. The, the, the fifth privilege of the children of God is this, suffering with Christ. You say, say what, Chad? Did you just say that the privilege of children of God is suffering with Christ? I mean, I'm not real up on language, but, you know, I mean, privilege is a positive word. Suffering is, is a negative word. That, I'm not sure what you're saying. Verse 17 again, second part. Paul said, all this is true. All these privileges are yours provided. We suffer with him in order that we also may also be glorified with him. For I consider, Paul said, that the sufferings of this present time, they're real, they're here, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know what Paul's saying? If you get all that we've already talked about through Jesus... If you have been given all these other privileges, then by the time you get down to to suffering, it's it's a price worth paying. It far outweighs what you're going to receive in glory, especially that last one we looked at. Our inheritance, the beauty, the, the, the satisfaction. The pleasure far outweighs whatever suffering in the present time we might have to endure. You know, Jesus calls us to be unashamed of him in this world. When he was here, he said that. He said, if you're ashamed of me and the Father in this adulterous generation here on earth, I'll be ashamed of you before the Father. It's just the way it works. You can't follow Jesus and be ashamed of him on earth. You can say that you do, but Jesus said, you'll be one of those to whom he says, many will say, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. He calls us to be unashamed of him. But he was up front and told us that when we're unashamed of him, the world's going to hate you just like it hated me. When you're unashamed of me, you will be persecuted for me. You will be hated because of me. Paul never made any bones about this. He said flat out to the young pastor, Timothy, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Straight up. You really want to follow Jesus, sir? 
Ma'am, are you serious about following Jesus? Teenager, are you, are you really going to follow Jesus? Here's the deal. If you follow Jesus, if, you're, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. I was praying last night that many of our teenagers at the Gilmer High School prom were persecuted because they lived righteously last night. Hello? Y'all all right? Y'all all right? That's how your preacher prays for you, teenagers. Moms and dads, that's how you need to be praying for your teenagers. An added factor in this whole exchange is the reality that our Father is making us more and more like Jesus through good fatherly discipline. Hebrews 12, 9 and 10. We've all had human fathers who disciplined us, but they're not perfect, are they? I'm just going to tell you. I probably never got a spanking I didn't need. But I know some of y'all did. You know, Daddy just messed up. You, You really didn't do it. It was little sister. It was big brother. Somebody took the wrong punishment, right? Okay, and let's just say your dad's... I mean, my dad was, was, in, was imperfect, and he probably said some things to me he shouldn't have said. I, I don't know. Our dads are imperfect, but they do the best they can if they're good dads, right? Well, think about this. God is our Father. Hebrews says God always disciplines us for our good. So alongside suffering for the cause of Christ, we have the Father disciplining us. James tells us that just... Various trials, trials of all different kinds, will come. And why will they come? So that Because the Father is testing and growing and strengthening your faith in Him. He's trying to wean you of the things of the world, make you more in love with Jesus, more satisfied only by Him. And so He lets storms come and things happen to pull your heart away from the things that would, listen, that would distract you and damn you eternally. He loves you too much to let you get too plugged in here. Hello? And yeah, what I just said is if you're too plugged in here, you should be concerned about your soul's eternity. Hello? You love this world too much? You don't long for home? There could be a real everlasting problem. Here's the bottom line. The path to glory is full of sanctifying suffering for every believer. It, 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 it comes from a multitude of forms. Persecution because of Christ, uh, training by the Father, discipline, just various trials to strengthen us. But, though the path to glory is full of sanctifying suffering for every believer, it is indeed a privilege because, listen to this, we suffer, how does he say it in verse 17? We suffer with Jesus, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In First Peter, Peter says it this way. This is how we ought to think about suffering. This is how we ought to understand the privilege of suffering with him. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed because in that day, you too will be glorified along with him. Do you rejoice in all of these privileges that we have in Christ? Our Father wants every believer to live in the joyful and grateful, spirit-given confidence that we are his children. Do you? If you're here today and you don't know 
God is Father. You can meet him today. You can leave this place as a confident child of God. Maybe you're a believer here today. You've trusted Jesus, but you don't live with this kind of confidence. You don't regularly rehearse these privileges that the Word of God has given us this morning. Maybe today you just want to seek God. You just want to dig into his Word there in Romans 8 where we've just been. And you just want to embrace for the first time the confidence that you've been living without. Listen to me. Brother, sister in Christ, God doesn't, your Father wants you to have that confidence. He wants you to have it. And I'll tell you one of the ways to get it. And I was just talking to a couple people this week. You've got to be in this book and hear the voice of God to grow and sustain this confidence that we're talking about tonight. In other words, it's, it's real simple. You got to go to Romans 8, 12 to 17 and read it and think about it, meditate on it. You got you to let it simmer and marinate in your heart. And when you do, the confidence comes. Will you? Let's pray together.